This is Molly Hemingway, encouraging you to listen to my favorite podcast, Issues, etc. Every day you get in-depth interviews with host Todd Wilkin asking expert guests substantive, thought-provoking questions on all of the important news and issues of our day. The expert guests are in culture, law, ethics, philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Expert guests, expansive topics, always extolling Christ, issues, etc. Tonight, you put your faith in me, and I will never let you down. Never let you down, New York. Thank you for your love and your support. Together, we're moving upward, onward, and upward. And may God bless all of you, the great state of New York and the United States of America. Thank you, New York. I love you. We reject woke ideology. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. We've accomplished more than anybody thought possible four years ago, but we've got so much more to do, and I have only begun to fight. God bless you all. Thank you very much. Thank you for a historic landslide victory. Those are victory speech excerpts from New York Governor Kathy Hochul and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Two very different races, but just two among very many races. I think the word of the day is underperformed. There was a red wave expected. There was a red tsunami expected. And, well, things did change. We'll be talking about that. Things did change, but not as much as people expected on either side. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Wednesday afternoon, November the 9th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be talking with Mark Hemingway about the midterm election results, and then we'll spend some time with Dr. Jack Kilcrease. He's author of the new book, Justification by the Word, Restoring Sola Fide, about the doctrine of justification. Mark Hemingway is senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. He joins us from Washington, D.C. Mark, welcome back. Glad to be back. What key races are still waiting on results? Well, obviously in the Senate, Georgia, the AP has just announced that um, they're, they're, it's headed for a runoff. Um, one interesting detail about what's going on there is that the new election laws that Republicans passed in the state um, reduced the window of time um, for a runoff election in the state, I think from nine weeks to four. So that'll be happening suddenly. And the other two big undecided Senate races in Arizona and Nevada both of those are, you know, votes are still being counted. And it looks like Laxalt is, as of this moment, Laxalt is the Republican candidate in, in Nevada is favored to win the Senate race there. But Nevada is a weird state and there's a lot of votes to be counted in Las Vegas where there's a big sort of Democratic union machine there. Blake Masters is running behind an Arizona Senate race. But there's still a a pretty good path for him to win. A lot of the outstanding votes should be very favorable to him. And I was, in fact, I spoke to a Republican consultant who's part of the master's campaign today. And they're feeling actually pretty good. 
you know, all Masters has to do is win 50 to 55% of the, you know, remaining ballots. And he, you know, they, they're confident he'll come out on top, which is eminently doable. But we've seen a lot happen in the past 24 hours that defied expectations. So me giving you a read on the situation presently uh, does not mean that these uh, results aren't subject to change. Anyway, that's the Senate. Republicans are still, you know, favored across the board to take control of the House. But the question is, is just how big their margin will be. Um, their margin will be a lot smaller than most people predicted at the beginning of the night. Republicans, I mean, Democrats have overperformed in their um, House races. But, um, you know, those races that are going to be determinative are kind of scattered around the country right now. And uh, I don't think there's any like one key, one or two key pivotal ones to discuss. There's There's a lot that's in play at the moment. Who were the big winners and the big losers last night? This is, you know, a, a tough question to answer in some respects. But when it comes to winners, I mean, obviously the the big, big winner was Ron DeSantis in Florida. I mean, this is a political story for the absolute ages. I mean, he barely won his election as governor um, in uh, Florida in 2018 by, you know, only a few thousand votes, as I recall, or maybe it was 10,000 votes. I can't remember what the margin was, but it's very, very small in a large state such as Florida. And the last I looked, he was up nearly 20% in something like 1.7 million, 1.6 million votes over his Democratic competitor, Charlie Crist. I mean, that kind of movement in four years of you know, amassing support is just I mean, I never, I, I can't think of an example in my, you know, 20 plus years of covering politics where something like that has happened. I mean, it is clear that Floridians just absolutely love Ron DeSantis. I mean, I saw the 60, I saw the CBS News report yesterday where they sent a reporter down to Florida and the reporter went out to try and talk to some Charlie Crist voters, the Democratic candidate, people who are supporting the Democratic candidate. And uh, he said he went to a diner and he, he was stopping people at a, you know, cars parked a stoplight in the street and, and, you know, trying to find Chris voters and he literally couldn't find one. So obviously, you know, DeSantis's victory last night has, you know, major ramifications for 2024. There's a lot of talk about whether or not DeSantis would challenge Trump. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of speculation that DeSantis would be afraid to do that. Um, with that kind of, you know, just overwhelming margin of victory and, you know, sort of proven leadership, certainly DeSantis is in a much stronger position to do that. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, as for big losers, to some extent, the Republican Party in general was a big loser last night. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's very likely that Republicans could end up with control of the House and uh, the Senate and still be considered losers for no other reason than there's just a you know, tremendous amount of missed opportunities across the board. Like I said, even if they take control of both houses, they will have dramatically underperformed even like the average, you know, midterm gain for the party out of power in the White House. And on top of that, there were lots of, you know, key races where they had opportunities to win. And a lot of people in the party are grumbling about bad candidates being picked, grumbling about Trump's influence on the party etc. You know, Republicans have lost a lot of, you know, winnable races. I mean, I think the average, you know, gain for the party out of power in a midterm election 
since the end of World War II in House seats is, and, and they, on average, the out of the party that's out of power uh, um, in opposition to the White House gains something like twenty-eight seats in a midterm election. Whatever the Republicans end up gaining in the House is going to be significantly less than that. And then when you factor in that Joe Biden is a president with a terrible um, approval rating. And, you know, inflation is, you know, at a 40-year high and all these other bad things are happening. The fact that Republicans were unable to capitalize in a very big way in that kind of national environment should be setting off klaxons at the GOP. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, not a great night for Republicans um, in that respect. And to the loser column, I would also add there are a number of sort of what I'd call celebrity Democratic candidates. Stacey Abrams, I mean, they, the press turned her into a national celebrity after she um, lost election in 2018, um, running against Brian Kemp in Georgia. Kemp was previously Secretary of State in Georgia, and she blamed him for rigging the vote, and the media went along with that long before Trump's election denying. And she, they turned her into this national celebrity who was you know, an expert on voter suppression and all these things. And she ran again and just got demolished, basically. She ran well behind Raphael Warnock, the Democratic Senate candidate in the state, lost convincingly to Kemp. Whatever reason, Georgia voters just decided they really did not like her. They also blamed her for her, you know, making noises about voter suppression for um, when Major League Baseball pulled the All-Star game from Atlanta over concern about their, you know, voting laws. They blamed her for drawing attention to that, even though Georgia instituted looser voting rules than, say, Joe Biden's home state of Delaware. So voters in Georgia thought that was very unfair. And then the other thing, um, the other the other candidate was uh, that's notable for this was Beto O'Rourke, the much celebrated Democratic hope in Texas. He lost the Senate race against Ted Cruz. He tried to run for president as a Democrat after generating all this national enthusiasm. And now he's lost a gubernatorial race in the state. And I don't know what the combined amount of money both of those two candidates have spent on their campaigns. But I mean, they lit probably a few hundred million dollars of Democratic donors on fire. Um, it was just absolutely, totally misguided support for them. You mentioned President Biden. He's scheduled to hold a press conference later today. What do you expect him to say? That is a good question. I don't imagine that um, there will be a lot of gloating or anything, but certainly, you know, he will be asserting himself, you know, confidently. I and mean, a lot of people, you know, had basically projected his political fortunes for dead. And um, there was a lot of talk that if Republicans had a big night last night, then there was going to be, you know, a major effort basically to, you know, force him out such that he wouldn't run again in 2024. The party considered him too much of a liability. After tonight, that's going to be much, much harder to do. To be perfectly honest, I'm not sure whether that helps Democrats and, and, and or may, might even help Republicans to you know have a situation where they can count on running against Biden and Kamala Harris, who are still going to be historically unpopular. But I do think he will hammer home all that he has a, a lot of things where He's going to claim that the narrative has gone against the conventional wisdom there, which is to say that I think there was a lot of people that felt that his legislative agenda was, an, was a bit of an overreach and was hurting Democrats. And he will, of course, take credit for the Inflation Reduction Act and you know student loan forgiveness and all the other things that people doubted him on, you know, electorally. And uh, he will basically, you know, I, I saw 
there was a clip that's that someone you know that, that I saw a reporter online saying it was circulating among the Biden camp, and it was from his interview with the New York Times, and they were deciding who to endorse in the Democratic primary in 2020, where Biden you know goes off and he tells them that you know, everyone has prematurely written his obituary, saying he's too old and this and that, but you know he's still here and he's still winning the primary, and uh, I think Biden is just going to be, you know, it'll it'll be the expectations for him were so low that um, simply asserting that you know hey I'm still here is going to be, you know, considered a win for him. Mark Hemingway is our guest. We're talking about midterm election results. When we come back, if the two biggest issues were inflation and the economy, why weren't the GOP gains greater? Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. This fallen creation is bested by tornado, hurricane, flood, pandemic, and more. LCMS Disaster Response helps our congregations, their pastors, and other church workers to reach out to their members and neighbors with mercy, which flows from Christ's altar. We offer quality volunteer training, help for congregational readiness and response, and disaster grant funding. To learn more, visit lcms.org disaster. That's lcms.org disaster. Listen to what you want, when you want. You're listening to Issues Etc. Join Lutherans for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 19th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Go to lutheransforlife.org to learn more about LFL's Conference for Adults, LFL at the March, and the Y for Life Youth Conference in Washington, D.C. The registration deadline is December 15th. Lutherans for Life. Equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org Have you thought about eternal life? When does it begin? What is eternal life? Well, your eternal life does not begin when your body, earthly body, fails and is laid into the grave. It begins, in fact, in the waters of holy baptism where you are tied to the death of Christ and in him you were raised. To learn more about this topic of eternal life, pick up your copy of the November issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Welcome back to Issues Etc. We're talking with Mark Hemingway of Real Clear Investigations about the midterm election results. So, Mark, if the top two issues, and they were polling as the top two issues, inflation and the economy, why weren't the GOP gains greater? Well, that's going to be a long time unpacking. I mean, I'm not sure anybody has any good answers on that. But 
I do think that um, there was a problem in the sense that Republicans just decided that the economy was so bad and Biden was so unpopular that they were just going to run against Democrats and not run for anything. They didn't really offer, um, in many cases, a sort of a viable policy alternative to explain how they would make the um, economy better, You know how they would deal with oil prices, how they would deal with inflation. I think that hurt them. And if you look at like the really triumphant election years, you know, Republicans often talk about, you know, 1994, the contract with America. They made this sort of, you know, explicit bunch of explicit policy promises to the American people and they bought into that. There was none of that this election. Um, and uh, I really think that, uh, um, or should say none of it in a real meaningful way. And I think that really did hurt them. People are still very wary of sort of the Trump chaos from those years, you know, whether it's fair or not to assign that to Trump or the media that covered him unfairly or any of the other stuff that was going on. People don't want chaos um, and they're, you know, sort of scared coming out of COVID and other things like that. And they want to believe that, you know, if they're going to, you know, change course here and you know, they, they want to know that the the horse that they're getting on, um, you know, knows where it's going. And I don't think Republicans were terribly convincing about that. Why didn't more Republican candidates take a page from your governor, Glenn Youngkin's playbook and talk about education? You know, this is a really good question, and I've been, you know, yelling about this for for years. I think Republicans did run on education in many, many places. They tried to run hard on it in Michigan and other places where there were long closures. They basically only ran on school closures and maybe some, you know, culture war stuff around the margins, like, you know, pornographic books in schools, libraries, and the transgender stuff, you know, maybe got a little bit of a mention. But the reality is, is that they need to be talking like bigger and systemically about how education is failing people. I mean, you know, that's a harder case to make in a lot of ways. You know, again, it's not just a situation to point out that it's not of enough of a situation just to point out that, oh, schools are currently failing, vote for me. You know, you have to explain how you've got a different education plan and that uh, if you vote for me, then, you know, we'll all get better outcomes. And I think Republicans are afraid to do that. The other thing is simply that, you know, maybe they've been a little gun shy of um, attracting the wrath of teachers unions, which are, you know, fabulously wealthy Democratic constituencies um, and more than willing to sink money into races if they perceive that the candidate is opposed to them. Did the GOP make a mistake in running these wealthy celebrity candidates like Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz, Blake Masters? Is that a winning strategy going forward? Well, I don't think being a wealthy celebrity is necessarily, you know, a disqualifier. I mean, as Donald Trump has proved, um, you know, and there's a long, extensive history of in the case of Herschel Walker, football stars in particular ending up in Congress. I mean, it really just boils down to, you know, a general question about candidate quality. Is this person a good a good candidate? And, you know, someone like Dr. Oz is an interesting case because, yes, he was a celebrity. And, yes, he you know, had to overcome some big, you know, negative impressions among Pennsylvanians initially because of who he was. But it's also true that he really bared down and put in the work and, you know, campaigned his butt off and he got really good at campaigning there by the end. Uh, The problem was really that there were structural problems, which is to say that the Republican ticket was being dragged down heavily in Pennsylvania by Doug Mastriano, the gubernatorial candidate who was dramatically underperforming both because he was a lackluster candidate and the guy who was running against Josh Shapiro was a, you know, stellar candidate. So, you know, I think Oz, you know, came to be liked by Pennsylvanians. It just wasn't enough to overcome the, you know, the baked in sort of democratic vote. 
On the other hand, Oz defeated someone in a primary that was polling a little bit better against his opponent, Fetterman, prior to that. And, you know, Trump's endorsement in the primary was probably decisive for putting Oz over the top. So these end up in, you know, really complicated, you know, calculus. You kind of have to evaluate each race on its own to determine who the right candidate was. But people are definitely having a conversation right now about Trump's endorsements in the in the primaries, whether or not they, they hurt because, you know, he was choosing unelectable MAGA candidates for odd reasons rather than, you know, more straightforward reasons about more straightforward criteria about whether or not they would would win their race. But, you know, being a celebrity candidate in and of itself isn't necessarily disqualifying. You know, Herschel Walker ran a little bit behind Kemp, but, you know, he, you know, he did pretty well, all things considered, considering how tight the environment was going to be. It's hard to say whether or not someone else would have done, you know, 1% better and knocked this out of a runoff. But this kind of to evaluate things in a case-by-case basis. So do you think that Herschel Walker was ultimately, of course, it's still going to a runoff, but do you think the Trump endorsement helped him or hurt him? Because he did run five or six points behind Kemp, who was kind of persona non grata with Donald Trump. It's, it's a little tough to say because you got to remember Herschel Walker in particular is not just like a celebrity like Dr. Oz in some grander sense. I mean, he's a particular Georgia celebrity. I mean, you know, Georgia football is a big deal. And Herschel Walker is, you know, maybe one of the most famous, you know, people that ever came out of that football program and is venerated in that state. You know, he was African-American. You know, it certainly helped him in certain ways in, in Georgia. But it's just really hard to say. Obviously, I think he he was a better candidate in some ways than people gave him credit for simply because, well, one, I think he, you know, look, he was a, I think the national press took the fact that Herschel Walker spoke in this, you know, sort of disjointed Southern drawl as evidence that he was stupid when the reality is I think Georgia voters were smart enough to realize that was not what was going on there. You know, Herschel Walker had some, you know, personal drama that obviously in, involving him allegedly paying for abortions and all this other mud that was being slung that, that didn't help him. And I do think that there was a, you know, enough Republicans who voted for Kemp, but couldn't bring themselves to pull the lever for Walker that, and that, you know, may have been decisive, but again, you know, that speaks to Walker's personal issues, not necessarily his status as a celebrity. So it's all just, you know, really hard to say. I mean, you know, I will say, you know, I, toward the end of that race, Herschel Walker was good on the campaign stump. And it actually, if you watch the debate, Herschel Walker did actually great uh, against Raphael Warnock, you know, a guy who's known for being this mellifluous reverend who speaks from the pulpit all the time. Herschel Walker really landed some, you know, significant points in that debate and surprised a lot of people. And people didn't talk about that. So, I don't know. I don't want to be too down on Herschel Walker. It's entirely possible that a better, more straightforward Republican candidate could have run closer to Kemp, because obviously Kemp is very much an establishment Republican who had a, a, a reputation for separating himself from Trump, and he, he did very well. But there's just a lot of X factors there, and you kind of have to evaluate it one-on-one. Let's return to, to Florida for just a second. And you talked about this kind of unprecedented political rise of of Ron DeSantis. How do you explain that success and that of Senator Marco Rubio there in Florida? 
Yeah. Well, Marco Rubio has always been uh, a great campaigner. I mean, if you've ever seen him, he kind of got this bad rap a few years ago because I don't know if anyone remembers, he was asked to give the Republican response to the State of the Union. And he had to like drink a glass of water in the middle of it in this really awkward way. And some people were like making fun of him. But the reality is, is that the guys always had a reputation for being able to, you know, speak extemporaneously in public in a way that was really impressive. He tell he's got a wonderful life story. He talks about his, you know, family of immigrants and Cubans and knowing what freedom means. And he just, you know, he's, he's a really great public speaker and a great candidate. And people in Florida clearly like him. He's got cred with the Hispanics there. He speaks great Spanish. He's just a great candidate for Florida. And the success of DeSantis, you know, it's almost, it's interesting because I don't think DeSantis is nearly as smooth a politician as a lot of other people that are successful he is in politics. Ron DeSantis's success rests almost entirely on the perception and demonstrated record of competence. I mean, his response to the the recent hurricane they had in Florida where like, I mean, he had that bridge to Sanibel Island like up and repaired like in a day or two. I mean, people are just really, really impressed with him. And, uh, you know, every time they, they, they predict he's done, and he's done a lot of really bold legislative stuff that, you know, people keep predicting, oh, well, this will be the end of him. I mean, he went, he went straight at Disney for crying out loud after Disney allegedly objected to his law that was designed to stop uh, people from teaching, you know, gender identity to young kids. And he went straight after Disney, the biggest, you know, corporate influence in a state. And, you know, he brought them to heel. Same thing. He pulled that, that stunt where he sent people to Martha's Vineyard to uh, make a point about, you know, the immigration being out of control. Everyone said, oh, well, this is going to hurt him with Hispanics in Florida. Oh, the heck it did. I mean, he triumphed with Hispanics. He has a reputation for being bold and backing up that bold action with competence. And, and that's his success. Mark Hemingway is our guest. We are talking about the midterm elections. We will talk about the Republicans. If they only gain control of the House and not the Senate, what will things look like going forward after this? The church's music from the second century. The 6th century. The 12th century. The 16th century. the 21st century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. 
So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well lived. Truth, freedom, vocation. Concordia University, Chicago. cuchicago.edu Your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Christ Our Savior Lutheran, Elizabeth, Colorado. First Bethlehem Lutheran, Chicago, Illinois. First Lutheran, Boston, Massachusetts. Lutheran Church of the Cross, Rockville, Maryland. Living Faith Lutheran, Cumming, Georgia. Redeemer Lutheran, Lawrence, Kansas. St. John Lutheran, Kewaskum, Wisconsin. St. Paul Lutheran, Indianapolis, Indiana. Trinity Lutheran, North Little Rock, Arkansas. And Zion Lutheran, Winter Garden, Florida. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. We're discussing midterm election results with journalist Mark Hemingway. This is Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Ad Crucem's Chrismons are a wonderful way to beautify your home and church with Christ-centered ornaments. You can view them along with other Christmas items and gifts at adcrucem.com, A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Let's run some scenarios here, Mark. If the Republicans control only the House and not the Senate, what are the ramifications? Well, the most obvious thing, though, is, is that Democrats have done a lot of infighting over the past two years, and, but they still managed to pass a few very big, bold pieces of legislation. I mean, they they did the Inflation Reduction Act, which has literally almost nothing to do with reducing inflation, but was just, you know, a grab bag of, you know, payoffs to different Democratic constituencies. And then they did the whole um, big COVID payouts at the beginning of of Biden's term that now most credible observers on Wall Street and other places say it was largely responsible for creating, for really pouring gas on the inflation problem. So the idea that uh, Democrats, so if Republicans control one of the houses, there's going to be no more big legislation like that from Democrats that's going to be able to be passed. Really bold, progressive stuff that, you know, might be ill-advised. So that will, you know, be a huge difference, you know, right then and there. I mean, it's just going to stop Biden legislative agenda, you know, dead in its tracks. But we're also looking at a situation where they control the House by a very slim margin. So, <laughs> it'll be hard for Republicans to to go on the offensive about things using what little legislative power that they have. If the Republicans manage to get control of both the House and the Senate, what are the ramifications there? Well, that will be that will give them they'll make them feel a little bit more empowered, I would say, to do some of the things that they're sort of itching to do like more investigations and stuff like that. They'll, they'll feel like they'll have more of a mandate to investigate things like Hunter Biden, other things that might be, you know, more controversial than if they're clinging onto, you know, narrow majorities. But I don't know. I mean, I think that the main thing is still that it, it stops Biden from 
passing any sort of you know major legislation. Now, if the Republicans control both the House and the Senate, this would be harder to do if it were just you know one chamber of Congress. But if they control both houses, then Democrats are going to try and portray Republicans as obstructionists for the next two years and try and run against them in, in 2024 and say that they stopped them from doing all these sort of like wonderful things. That will be different. But I don't know. It, it really doesn't do much. If anything, it just, you know, brings everything to, you know, a grinding halt. It's about dividing power in Washington and nothing gets really done in, in that case. And in some cases, that's exactly what voters want. How will President Trump explain the election results? I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, Trump has made some statements to the, you know, he's, he's gone after O'Day, who was the candidate in, in the Colorado Senate race, who explicitly came out and said, he was running as Republican, explicitly came out and said that if Donald Trump runs again in 2024, he would actively campaign against him. Trump has been gloating about him losing, even though he never really had much of a chance to win anyway, just simply because there isn't a lot of other bright spots for Trump to sort of gloat about. I honestly don't know. I mean, Trump was talking about, and as far as I know, they sent out an email about this earlier today, basically suggesting that Trump was going to declare his candidacy for um, the presidency next week. And I wonder if the dismal showing by Republicans is going to cause him to sort of, you know, rethink that at a minimum, you know, he might want some time to pass so he can craft some sort of different narrative about what's going on here, because there's a lot of knives out for Trump right now, simply because a lot of the candidates that he endorsed lost. And not only that, he was decisive in primaries where a lot of people are pointing to the fact that, oh, well, there were more moderate Republicans that might have won. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of the, the counterfactuals aimed at Trump are difficult questions to answer. I mean, Trump has a unique appeal and whatever you want to say about his downsides. Um, it's also true that there's no other figure in the Republican Party right now that can just show up in a random town and fill a stadium. Donald Trump can do that. I don't know how he's going to explain this away or, you know, whether or not he's going to wait to announce that he's you know running for president. But I am certain that there are a lot of people right now that are really trying hard. And you kind of see this in the media coverage on the right. There's a lot of people that are invested in all of a sudden trying to make DeSantis the de facto leader of the party and, and trying to marginalize Trump right now. Whether or not that just irritates Trump and you know tears apart the party, I don't know. But it's going to be real interesting to watch the next few weeks. Mark, I'd like to get your reaction to what former Attorney General Bill Barr had to say about President Trump at our Issues Etc. Making the Case conference. You know, my, my view on him now is, well, I give him a lot of credit, and while he may have been the right man and probably was in 2016, and while his shtick, his persona worked in that time frame, if we really want to make America great again, he, he cannot do it. A 78-year-old lame duck who really is somewhat petty and interested in revenge and so forth, it, you know, is not going to be able to turn the country around. We need a decisive victory that is comprehensive, sort of like the Reagan's victory in 1980, and uh, that led to an era. And he's not the person to deliver it. So I have no hostility toward him. It's just that he's not the right guy to make America great again going forward. What's your reaction there, Mark? I mean, that's a very sort of concise and spot-on summation of the case against Trump. Obviously, there have been any number of people in the Republican establishment that have felt that way 
for a long time. What's interesting about it is the way that Barr frames it, which is simply to say that, you know, this is making this criticism, you know, more in sorrow than in anger. And there are a lot of people within the Republican establishment that do think like actively and irrationally hate Trump and don't appreciate what he did for the party. Whereas Barr, I think, is accurately stating that Trump did a lot of great things for the party, both in terms of winning the presidency, expanding its appeal and its reach to different minorities and other things like that. There was a lot of good that came out of that. On the other hand, you know, Trump is, you know, Trump, he's a you know unique, big personality that tracks a lot of hostility in addition to a lot of loyalty. And, you know, there are upsides and downsides to this. And he's also old, as Barr points out. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, never say never. You know, Trump is a really unique figure and he has, you know, proven himself on many occasions to be able to defy expectations. But I do think something interesting has been happening and and you know where that argument that Barr makes where again this appreciation of trump with the well being resigned to the fact that he can't be the guy to be the standard bearer going forward you're kind of seeing that attitude you know it used to be very much the establishment class's attitude except maybe even the people that are intimately involved in the republican establishment were more overtly hostile but that idea that you know we have to unchain ourselves from trump has jumped a little bit from, you know, political insiders to, I think it's kind of widely shared among, you know, more affluent and, you know, say educated Republican voters are increasingly sour on Trump and more bullish on DeSantis simply because they feel like they have an alternative. And the question is, is after the dramatic underperformance last night, whether or not that attitude is going to slowly matriculate down to deeper into the party, to more base voters, to more lower information, Republican voters, you know, people that aren't as invested in politics and whether or not people that were attracted to Trump because of who he was or, you know, his personality or whatever, are going to start to see a disconnect between who Trump is and the ability to win going forward. But, you know, that's something only time will tell. I saw someone ask a question on Twitter this morning saying, has Donald Trump with last night's results become the Republicans Hillary Clinton popular enough with the base, but a political liability with independence? You know, there's some exit polling data to suggest that, yeah, he was a problem with independence. And so that's that's one interesting way of looking at it. But it's again, it's hard to read that into exit polls and like this soon after such a raw defeat. But yeah, I mean, that would be one very big concern, I think, that, that people would have. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether or not, again, this idea that Trump, you know, is, is toxic with independence and people that aren't already sold on him starts to impact people's perception of him. Because remember, a big part of Trump's appeal was he's a winner. He talked a lot about winning when he was running for president, and he completely defied expectations by winning. So a lot of people would give him the benefit of the doubt. Well, Trump didn't win last night. I mean, I realize he wasn't technically on the ballot, but the perception across the board was that the candidates that he endorsed and his role in the election didn't help Republicans. In fact, it, it probably hurt them. So that scrambles the calculus in a lot of ways. Whereas before, there was some question, I think, about whether or not Trump was in any way even beatable in the GOP primaries because of you know, that whole he has on at least the base part of the the party, as you point out. I think people now are starting to see a path around him. If you're Ron DeSantis, before, you know, he didn't want to get involved in any sort of like public debate with Trump or have to challenge him in a primary necessarily. Now, you know, I'm not sure DeSantis has to, you know, 
take Trump's bait. He can simply give some version of Barr's speech every time his name comes up and, you know, point to his unbelievable 1.6 million vote, you know, victory in Florida and just say something along the lines of Dale Vellante, you know, God wills it that I'd be the Republican candidate. And, you know, that might be a powerful argument. But again, (laughs) Trump is a really unique guy and I am really hesitant to to rule him out of anything. And, and, you know, there's no question that he inspires a certain loyalty and, and for good reason. I mean, he delivered on so many things and realigned the party on foreign policy and some immigration and so many other issues where the, the mainstream of the party become completely out of touch with its base. So he still has a, a powerful connection there. And, you know, it's way too early to draw any big conclusions about 2024. Mark Hemingway is senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. He joined us from Washington, D.C. You'll find a link to his columns at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Mark, thank you. Thank you. We'll be talking with Dr. Jack Kilcrease, author of a new book, Justification by the Word, Restoring Sola Fide, about the doctrine of justification next. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. This new resource will help you navigate God's Word with clarity and confidence. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number 1-800-325-3040 or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Lutheranism in the Public Square. You're listening to Issues Etc. St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, is hosting its annual Sausage Supper on Sunday, November 13th. Carry-out meals are available beginning at 11.30 Sunday morning until 5.30 Sunday evening. St. Paul Lutheran is located three miles off of Interstate 55 on Old Route 66. St. Paul Lutheran's Carry Out Sausage Supper, 11.30 a.m. through 5.30 p.m., Sunday, November 13th, in Hamill, Illinois. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical Curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. Simplyclassical.com.